Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. At the end of today's podcast, there'll be a postscript on the current financial situation, so please keep listening. My guest today is Arnold Kling, who blogs at EconLog, which is also found here at the Library of Economics and Liberty at econlive.org. And his latest book is Crisis of Abundance, which we've talked about in a previous podcast. Arnold, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Our topic today is a little bit unusual. Uh, here at Econ Talk, we try and stay away from things that are uh, hot news topics for a whole variety of reasons, because I know a number of you listen to these way into the future. So uh, we are taping this on September the 12th, 2008, when financial markets here in the United States are in something of um, a little bit of turmoil. And what is going to happen exactly is not clear. And we're going to talk about them as best we can today with particular focus on uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, uh, which have been in the news very much lately. And in particular, I think myself and probably many of you have no real idea of what those agencies do, those organizations, and how we got to where we are today. So I thought it would be very useful to have Arnold, who is not only – uh, an economist interested in the topic, but a former employee of, I think, Fannie Mae. Freddie Mac. Freddie, oh, sorry, Freddie mm-hmm. Mac. Um, is there is there jealousy between the two of them? There was. Okay. So uh, Arnold was at Freddie Mac and I think uh, understands this as well or better than just about anybody. So I thought it would be fun for me to ask him a lot of uh, uh, dumb questions because uh, this is such an important issue. It's going to – it's already spilling over into uh, – in today's news, the government is going to try to sell uh, Lehman Brothers. Interesting job for the government. It's a new activity, uh, selling financial institutions. Got into that into practice with Bear Stearns, which we've talked about in passing in a number of podcasts. So in this podcast, we're going to really uh, – even though it's very timely and topical and risks being stale and out of date in a couple of weeks – I think the background information here, as well as uh, Arnold's insights into the structural issues involved, will be useful uh, beyond uh, today. So first, let's start with uh, Freddie and uh, Fannie. Uh, these are government-sponsored enterprises, and I think most of us really don't have any idea of what that means exactly. So tell us what, how, the, what's their history. And uh, how did that? Uh, how did they come about, and what did they do? All right, well, let me take a step back and actually talk about sort of what is a mortgage, what is a mortgage loan, what is, a, and then get into what is a bank mortgage loan, what is a securitized mortgage loan. So a mortgage, as I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, is a piece of paper that's on file with the uh, government agency that tracks titles to properties, and it's a piece of paper that encumbers your property. So if your property is mortgaged. And, and I want to buy it from you, before I can buy it from you, that mortgage has to be, I'll, I'll say, canceled or removed. I don't know what the legal term is. But if that mortgage is sitting there on file, I can't buy it from you. Now, typically, the mortgage is attached to what's called a mortgage loan. 
And what that means is there's a con contractual agreement that if you uh, pay off the mortgage loan, then the lender will lift or remove that mortgage, and so then I can buy it, and, uh, and so I have your house. In everyday language, we say, I own my house free and clear, right? So often I'll say, I own my house, but of course it's not full control of the property if it has a mortgage. But once I pay the mortgage off, then it's, quote, mine, really. It's not the bank doesn't own it. It has no encumbrance on it. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the features of the mortgage contract is that it, it ties the loan to this mortgage, this piece of paper that encumbers your property. Another feature of it is that if you don't make your payments on the mortgage, then the bank forecloses on the house, which effectively means that the bank owns the house and can, and can sell it. The, uh, that typically only, only happens if the house is worth less than the value of the loan. Uh, why is that true? Well, suppose you had a $300,000 house with a $250,000 loan, and a month goes by, you don't make your payment. Another month goes by, you don't make your payment. Third month goes by, you don't make your payment. Uh, what happens at that point? Um, I, as the bank, I, I would like to foreclose. I send you a notice saying I'm going to take over your house. You sit there and say, well, wait a minute. I could pay off this $200,000 loan by selling my house, and I'd have $50,000, whereas if I give you the house, I have nothing. The equity that you've accumulated over either from your down payment or the past contributions you've made along the way. Yeah, or the just the appreciation of the house since you bought it. All right. those things could give you what's called equity in the house, and the equity in your house, uh, if it's positive, means that you almost, will do almost anything to avoid defaulting. If In worst case, you'll just sell it in desperation, take the money, and at least you're better off than being kicked out of your house with, without having gotten equity, your equity. Yeah. But <laughs> sometimes... Prices don't appreciate that. Yeah, appreciate. That, that that's true. So any so we have the bank loan that has that feature that you have that has the house as collateral, and the bank can take the house um, if if you uh, stop making payments on your mortgage. So that's a bank mortgage loan. Now we get to a securitized mortgage loan when the functions that the bank performs get divided up among different parties. So you can have uh, one person originate the loan. They you know, evaluate you as a borrower. They do all the paperwork, and they give approval of the loan. But they immediately turn around and sell it to somebody. And then... They, they formally lend you the money, but yeah, they, they don't hold on to the contract. They don't hold on to the contract and they they'll in effect sell the loan very very quickly. And the uh, now you could have a case where that would be a mortgage broker, let's say who's doing that, who just sells it to a bank and then the bank holds the loan and that's not a very it, it, that's not a very interesting uh, innovation. I mean the mortgage broker in effect acts almost like the employee of the bank. It's just they're it's just you're sort of outsourcing the, the function that's known as mortgage underwriting, that is the process of approving the loan and getting all the paperwork together. Um, a richer form of securitization is where the, um, the buyer of the loan 
puts, pulls that loan together with a bunch of other similar loans and creates a, what's called a mortgage-backed security. So there might be you know, 300 loans, mortgage loans in a mortgage-backed security or 1,000 loans or any number. And those loans will tend to have similar characteristics, similar interest rates. They'll be the same type of mortgage. Uh, they might be from different parts of the country, uh, but the you know in general the it's useful to have a pool of mortgages that's roughly similar so that in, so that people who invest in that pool kind of know what they're know something about what they're getting. So you have this pool of mortgages and you have all the payments that come from that pool. It's called a mortgage security because, uh, at least with Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae behind it, the, uh, the it's more secure. The payments are more secure than just the uh, security of the underlying mortgage loans. So, if Freddie Mac has a pool of you know 500 mortgage loans in a pool, and yours is one of the loans in the pool, and you default on that mortgage. Freddie Mac, instead of saying to the investors, well, Russ defaulted, so you're going to get less money, Freddie Mac says, don't worry. We are going to buy buy Russ's loan out of the pool, pay you the money right now so that you get your principal right now, and then we'll go back and figure out how much we can get out uh, out of the loan, out of the house that Russ defaulted on. So... The way I used to describe it when I worked at Freddie Mac and, and people would come to me to interview, I'd say Freddie Mac buys mortgages and sells securities. The mortgages can default, the securities cannot, therefore we d- take the default risk. Freddie Mac is, is in the middle taking the default risk on the mortgages. Okay, so let's back up and let's, I'm going to walk through that again because this is central to the conversation. We could imagine a world where there were no mortgage-backed securities. We could imagine a world where Individual banks would make loans to homeowners, assessing the risk and making their best judgment of who was a good risk, using the home as collateral. And banks would have a, their own portfolio of, of loans. And within that portfolio, inevitably, some of them would, would not turn out well. And banks, knowing that, would charge a premium of, in, a, in making the loan that would insulate them, insure them a little bit against the risk that, that some people are not going to turn out as well as they'd – some of those loans are not going to turn out as well as they'd like. Somewhere along the way – I don't know when that is, so maybe you'll tell me in a minute – someone had the clever idea of saying, well, is it an individual bank in that world of, of making loans to people in their local community, uh, they're going to be buffeted by economic forces that are unpredictable and they're going to be very uncomfortable with the – risks that are involved with that package. So it would be better in certain situations to make a larger pool because the law of large numbers is such that it's going to be more predictable as to what the default risk is going to be. Or it might be more diversified geographically so there would be less risk in the whole pool. And that would make then the bank more likely to lend. So somebody came along and said, let's create... Let me interrupt you there because that's a modern rationale for for securitization but it's not historically why it developed. So let me give you the history there. Wait a minute, but before we get to the history, and forget my, then forget my rationale, I just want to literally understand the guarantee, the, the story you just told about Freddie Mac, then we'll go back to the history. So whatever the reason is, 
it has become um, financially viable until very recently to pool these mortgages and sell them. I, I literally don't understand what you mean by securitize. So let's walk through that example again. I'm Freddie Mac. Uh, I've got 500 mortgages in a bundle, and I'm going to sell to investors, which could be both individuals or other financial institutions, access to this pool. Tell me how that works again. Okay. Let's, let's not even do Freddie Mac. Let's say I'm a bank. And I've got a whole bunch of mortgages on my books. And for some reason, I would like to sell them. I'd like to get cash for them rather than sit, cash right now, rather than sit and wait for the borrowers to pay them off. And so I, I want to sell them to other investors. I face a problem in that those other investors say, well, we didn't underwrite those loans. We have no idea what's sitting there. How can you... Uh, how how can we buy them safely? Maybe you're selling us junk. Maybe the stuff you're selling us is about to default, and that's the reason you're selling it to us. And so as a bank, I say, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll guarantee you that if any of these default, I'll pull the loan out of the pool, and I'll pay it right up. I'll pay it back right then and there. Does that make you happy? The full amount. The full amount. And uh, not the full amount of the whole pool, but the full amount of that that, that that particular loan. So otherwise, if the loans pay off gradually, you'll get gradual monthly payments. But if anyone defaults, I'll just pay that right away so you don't have to worry about that as an investor. And the investor says, okay, well, now I can understand that. And that's what's called a, a securitized mortgage pool. Okay. Now, what role does Freddie and Fannie play in that story? Okay, well, because any institution could have offered that package without a government-sponsored enterprise, right? Uh, Fred, My understanding is, quote, they guarantee things. What do they? What do they guarantee? Well, Freddie guarantees that it will pull the loan from the pool if it defaults and pay the pay the money in full. So that's what it's guaranteeing. It's guaranteeing that, as an investor in the mortgage security, you do not have to worry about individual mortgage loans defaulting. You have no fear whatsoever. Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae will step in, buy the loan from the pool when it defaults, and you'll get your, your principal back. And so. that's what they do? They go out and pool these mortgages and sell securities to investors uh, and thereby enable it giving, also giving banks a little more comfort about... I mean, the claim is, is that they make the housing market better. They're not just adding an, an idea of an, of an investment vehicle here that's a way to invest in real estate for investors. They're doing something else too, supposedly. What's the government have to do with it? Why isn't it just a private enterprise? Well, let me go back historically. Okay. Historically, Fannie Mae was chartered during the Great Depression when a whole bunch of banks went under, and so it was very hard to get a mortgage loan. The government also decided that the standard mortgage loan at the time, which was a short-term balloon mortgage, you know, you, that your mortgage loan would go for, let's say, five years or three years, and then all of it would be due, uh, the government said, well, let's have, these, uh, have a 30-year amortizing mortgage, meaning that you make payments steadily for 30 years rather than just paying interest for a little while and then slammed with this big balloon payment. Uh, an amortizing mortgage, by the time you're done with the 30-year payment, 30 years, it's gradually, the principal has gradually gone down to zero. So the government liked those, that idea, and so it 
one of the things that <laughs> it wanted Fannie Mae to do was sort of encourage those types of mortgages. So Fannie Mae would buy those types of mortgages. And Fannie Mae held them in its portfolio. It didn't sell them out to investors. Why did that – at this point, by the way, this is 1938, and Fannie yeah. Mae is a government agency. It's not a government – it's not the Fannie Mae of today. It's a – it's like the Department of Housing if we had such a thing. Yeah, yeah. It's So you say they were buying – to encourage this 30-year mortgage thing – Fannie Mae, a government agency in 1938, would buy up mortgages from individual banks and do what? And hold them and just collect the payments or deal with the defaults, whatever, whatever it's dealing with. So just as if it were a gigantic savings and loan. Fannie Mae acted as a gigantic savings and loan in the 1960s. Well, time out. They didn't lend any money. You said they acted like a giant savings and loan. They, they were not a, a lender per se. I would say they were. They, they were. They put up. They put. They put up the money. Because in 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 they're indirectly they're a lender. So, uh, you're a bank or a mortgage banker. Let's say you're a mortgage banker and you uh, make a loan for a hundred thousand dollars. Then you sell the loan to Fannie Mae. That means Fannie Mae gives you a hundred thousand dollars. You're now out of the picture. And other than you collect the payments from the borrower and pass them to Fannie Mae. So what was Fannie Mae's balance sheet in the years when it was a government agency? Uh, its assets were, were <coughs> mortgage loans, and its liabilities were long-term debt. Long-term debt. And, some short, and short-term debt, both. Issued by? Issued by Fannie Mae. So they borrowed money. They issued bonds. Mm-hmm. To, for what purpose? To fund the mortgages. Okay, so then we ask the question, what was the, um, what was the incentive on the part of banks to make careful loans knowing that Fannie Mae would always buy them? Uh, Fannie Mae had the job of overseeing mortgage bankers and try and making sure, so Fannie Mae would set guidelines uh, they have they there's a there was a thick book of guidelines that said the loan to value ratio can be no higher than this the payment income ratio can be no higher than that there can be no more than these many problems in their in the credit history things like that so those are called those guidelines were issued and if the um, if the mortgage banker didn't adhere to those guidelines, there were various forms of punishment. Uh, the uh, Fannie Mae could order the mortgage banker to repurchase the loan, that is, buy the loan back from Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae could suspend the mortgage banker's privileges to sell to Fannie Mae. So those were the types of sanctions that they had. So in 1968, uh, under LBJ's Lyndon Baines Johnson's presidency, Fannie Mae gets, quote, spun off and privatized in a particularly peculiar way. But, but to make sure I understand this, between 1938 and 1968, the U.S. housing market was dominated by um, a government agency that regulated banks and what they could no. do? No, because uh, for a long time, the housing market was dominated by savings and loans. And the savings and loans were like banks, uh, but they specialized in mortgage lending. So they were a large part of the mortgage lending industry. They weren't part of Fannie Mae didn't fill no. with them? No. 
So, so they had their own portfolios of mortgage loans. So think of so a savings and loan was sort of doing what Fannie Mae was doing, or I tend to think of conversely that Fannie Mae was a gigantic savings and loan, as a savings and loan was taking deposits from depositors or you know sometimes borrowing money in in the credit markets, but typically money from depositors and lending it out to uh, to mortgage borrowers. And of course, there were regulations on interest rates they could pay on their uh, their borrowing from the public, and, and that was supposed to keep them from getting out of control. Yeah, well, the, the savings and loans faced three regulations that are notable. Are, well, let me, just, let me just pick with two. One is um, they were, there, were regulation, there were limits on the interest rates they could pay to depositors. So they, they, they could not pay more than, you know, for a while it was 3%, then it got gradually raised to 4%, and so on. Uh, the other thing they couldn't do was sort of operate across state lines. And the, so a couple things happened in the 1970s as a result of that. One is, as inflation took off and interest rates rose and money market funds developed, the funds available to savings and loans dried up. And so they couldn't lend anymore, and in fact, they couldn't even, they were, uh, as, the, as the deposits fled out, they, they were in trouble because they had no assets to sell to meet the depositors, and so they were, they were starting to go out of business. Um, the other problem was this across-state lines problem, which uh, Freddie Mac was initially chartered to deal with, which was that California was chronically short of mortgage money, and other states in the East had lots of mortgage money, but there was no way to, to move it around. And so what Freddie Mac did was create a securities market for mortgages so that a savings and loan in California that didn't have enough deposits could make a mortgage loan, put it into a Freddie Mac security, have that security be bought by a New York savings and loan, which had plenty of deposits, and that way the money could flow from New York to California through that securities market. So that's why the securities market was created initially, not because of the uh, inherent efficiency of that as a, as a way of delivering mortgage funds. Okay, I'm, I'm actually learning something valuable here. It's unfortunately um, it's very depressing knowledge, but uh, it's always good to be wiser than, than less wise. I sp more knowledgeable than less knowledgeable. I may not be wise, but... Um, so in what in this in this 1938 to 1968 period when savings and loans were a healthy relatively healthy part of the mortgage market what was Fannie Mae's role they were I think of them as just another big savings and loan but who were they if they weren't dealing with savings and loans who who were they dealing with it's called a mortgage banker and all a mortgage banker is somebody who doesn't collect deposits so they have no source of funds other than someone like Fannie Mae. They have to sell the loan to uh, to an investor, in this case, Fannie Mae. Okay, so 1968 comes along, uh, and the government, LBJ, decides to dump Fannie Mae off the government books and, quote, privatize it. What was this new entity that's now this weird quasi-private, quasi-public, GSE, government sponsored enterprise how what how was it structured uh it was shareholder owned 
and it had as its assets the mortgage loans that it purchased from these mortgage bankers, and its liabilities consisted of its own debt. So it's like, I, again, I think of it as a, a giant savings and loan. The difference, of course, though, was that there's this weird thing uh, which people call an implicit guarantee, which is to me an oxymoron, right? An implicit guarantee is not a guarantee. Yeah. It's is that somehow Fannie Mae's activities and Freddie Mac's activities are backed up by the U.S. government. Yes, Fannie Mae had the word federal in its name, Federal yes. National Mortgage Association. And that word federal was a you know, sort of an <coughs> said to investors that you know, if push comes to shove uh, and this company gets in trouble, uh, don't worry, the government will take care of them. And in fact, when the savings... Uh, if I can carry this history forward, in, in the 70s, inflation takes off. Uh, the savings loan industry was known as a 363 industry. That is, it would pay depositors 3%, lend to mortgage borrowers at 6%, and the executives would go out in the golf course by 3 p.m. That was 363. And, the money machine. Yeah, it's a, it was a very simple business. Uh, in the 70s, that simple business uh, collided with high inflation rates that send interest rates way up. And so the savings and loan model was no longer viable. They, they would normally have raised their interest rates to attract the money they needed to make the loans, but now because of this, and it's Regulation Q is, where, is what yeah. it was. Regulation Q said they couldn't, pay, they couldn't promise their uh, depositors more than 3%, and so as a result, no one wanted to give them the money they needed to make the mortgages. Well, it's, and it's worse than that because when market interest rates are, let's say, for long-term debt are 10%, and you've got an, a mortgage asset that is paying 6%, that asset is deeply underwater. So these savings and loans were deeply underwater. What does that mean when you say deeply underwater? They're, Why would that be a problem? Um, basically, let, let's let's use five percent and ten percent. If essentially, if you've got an asset that pays five percent, and the market rate is ten percent, you can get about fifty cents on the dollar for your asset. So it's worth about half as much uh, as what you paid for it. And when you've when your assets are worth half of what you paid for it, you're bankrupt. Uh, another way to look why, at why aren't you just making less money than you thought you would? Well, let's say you have to borrow. Okay, <clears throat> in, because the savings and loan has borrowed short and lent long. So let's say you, you lift Regulation Q. In fact, we did this experiment. You lift Regulation Q and say, all right, you can pay anything you want to depositors. So the good news is you can get money. The bad news is that you, the money you get costs more than the return on your assets. So you've got these 6% mortgages, and now you have to pay 8% on deposits, and you're losing 2% on all of on your whole, entire balance sheet. More money is going out the door than is coming in, which yeah. is why you're in trouble. Yeah. Okay. So the savings and loans were effectively bankrupted by the inflation. Uh, you know, most of the savings and loans were effectively bankrupted. Uh, sort of with or without Regulation Q. With Regulation Q, their their deposits would fly out the door. They'd have to shut down right away. Uh, without Regulation Q, maybe they could keep getting deposits, but they would keep losing money, and eventually they'd run out of capital, and again, they, they would go out of business. Well, the government basically took the latter route. They gradually lifted Regulation Q. Uh, in fact, securitization also kept them alive longer than they otherwise would have been. Incidentally, Fannie Mae was losing a million dollars a day 
uh, in the early 1980s as interest rates sh shot up because they had the same problem as, an, as a savings and loan. They're, they were funding with more like short-term debt and their mortgages were these 30-year mortgages and so the their cost of funds was above the uh, interest rate that they were earning on mortgages. So the government guarantee was very important for everybody involved. It was important for the savings and loans because people wouldn't keep their money in the savings and loans except they had the FSLIC, the uh, Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation, which is what became merged into the FDIC now, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So we had deposit insurance and that kept people from panicking and pulling their money out of the savings and loans. And Fannie Mae, people didn't pull their money out of that because there was that term federal, and so people figured they would uh, that they would be kept alive. And in fact, uh, as soon as interest rates started coming down in the mid-1980s, Fannie Mae quickly became profitable again and very profitable, and so that, that those fears dissipated. We had two things going on. We had, we had falling interest rates, appreciating housing prices, right, in the 80s that, that made it easier for them to... And, their and the third thing is that you had the collapse of the savings and loan industry, so their competition is is disappearing. Uh, and in fact, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, I just, as I describe it, fed on the carcasses of the savings and loans because as they were going under, they, uh, uh, in desperation, securitized their mortgage loans so that they would have more money so that they could make other loans and make other bets, and those other bets tended to go badly as well. So uh, with one hand, the government was uh, giving backing to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae to uh, securitize uh, loans on, mortgage loans on the uh, savings and loans balance sheets. And then with the other hand, when the savings and loans uh, made bad bets with this money that they raised by selling mortgage loans, so with the other hand, the government had to b then bail out the savings and loans and had to... Uh, pay off the depositors. Okay, then what happened? <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. So that head's spinning, but go ahead. So now we're in the uh, kind of latter part of the 1980s. Uh, Freddie Mac uh, gets spun out of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board just the way Fannie Mae had once been spun out. So Freddie Mac becomes a uh, shareholder-owned company. Uh, they do that in part because the Savings and loans owned the shares in Freddie Mac, and so if they, so by privatizing it, they they would give some appreciation to the to that asset for the savings and loans. That the savings and loans made a, a slight profit on the uh, when the when Freddie Mac went public, and they were desperate to get any money into savings and loans any way they could. So anyway, so Freddie Mac is now private, sort of, sort of quasi private, right? Shareholder owned, put it yes. that way. Fannie Mae is shareholder owned. The savings and loans are out of the picture. And so Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae proceed to dominate the, the market for what's called conforming loans. There was still a limit that the government set on the amount that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae could lend to any individual borrower. No mortgage loan could be over a certain amount, and that amount was sort of indexed to housing prices. And the idea was to keep it limited to sort of middle-class housing. But again, I want to just to clarify, if we're in the 1980s now, the SNLs are gone, and I, I'm a young married family uh, going out to buy our first house. 
I show up at Bank of America or whatever my local bank is, and I get a loan from them. I don't. I don't go to Fannie Mae and get a loan. Right. So, so Fann- what? What's actually Fr- happening? Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae have never lent directly to borrowers. They've always. So you either go to a bank, which collects money from depositors, but could still, instead of funding the loan with deposits, sell it to uh, Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae, or you go to a mortgage banker, which doesn't even have deposits, and the mortgage banker has no choice but to sell that loan when they uh, when they fund fund it. And so, now to step back to the economics, what is at this point in this conforming loan period when uh, there's a a ceiling, government imposed, government imposed, right? Yeah. Government imposed. So even though they're private, there's a regulatory ceiling on how much, uh, how big a loan, right? Right. That I understand it moves around, but but it, there's a ceiling. And what is the importance? If we step back and look at the economics, what's the importance of the existence of of these agencies? In other words. In the absent, if they did not exist, if they were shut down, what would happen to the mortgage market? What role do they play in? People say they encourage home ownership right. by holding interest rates down. Is that true? What were they doing? Okay, they in the because of quote the guarantee. Supposedly, right. it's supposed to reassure the bank or the mortgage broker that it's going to turn out okay. Well, they reassure the investor that it's going to turn out okay. Which investor? The person. The. Uh, Whoever, whoever ultimately buys the loan, so it could be it could be a foreign, you know, a foreign institutional investor. It could be a pension fund who could buy these mortgage securities. All sorts of people can now buy these securities. Before, before there's there's a if there's no Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and there's no mortgage securities market. Let's say let's suppose let's go that go take that step, there's no mortgage securities market, then the only person who can own your loan is a bank, the bank that originates the loan. They can't sell it because there's no securities market. Once there's a securities market, then these securities can be owned by pension funds, they can be owned by all all sorts of other people. Um, The result of that is that it increases the supply of money ultimately available to mortgage loans and reduces the cost of mortgages. By how much? That's a good question. Uh, the typical answer is about one quarter of one percent. So, if the mortgage rate would have been six percent had everything been restricted to banks, it would get down to five point seven five percent if uh, it also included Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And the, the argument being that that if I'm a bank. Uh, Instead of just relying on my own assets, I'm implicitly tapping into the assets of those pension funds and other people. So there's also a risk element there. You're making it sound like just, it's just a flow of funds. There's also a risk element of how many people on the other side of the transaction I'd be willing to lend to knowing that it's going to be off my balance sheet if I'm going to be bundling this up and selling them, right? Well, you're bringing up kind of a moral hazard issue, yeah. which... Um, it's going to be important. Well, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae's job, in a lot of sense, is to manage that moral hazard. Um, Explain what moral hazard okay, is. Okay, so the moral then... hazard is that the uh, the mortgage banker or the bank or whoever is selling the loan to Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae has every incentive to sell junk. I mean, you just, you know... You, Everything, everything, everything from a loan that is slightly flawed in some way to something that's total fraud. That you know, that you know, the 
or something. It could be on an empty lot. You right. could, you, I mean, <laughs> we, 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 we saw everything at Freddie Mac in terms of fraud. I mean, the, there's the, the creativity of, of mortgage bankers in delivering fraudulent loans is tremendous. Um, but uh, So there, the, obviously the, the – So the, the part of your job then is you have people monitoring this. We have a, you have a quality control unit that does nothing but ensure this. You have this thick book of seller service or guidelines that tells people who are lending to you this is what you have to do to sell us a mortgage loan. And if you haven't done everything and dotted these I's and crossed these T's, then we're going to make you repurchase that loan. So there are there are all these risk management things. Freddie Mac had a giant risk management department. It had a giant uh, financial uh, department. And I, we can get into. In fact, I, I might. I'd like to get into uh, sort of what I did when I was there. Uh, my sort of my role, such as it was in uh, dealing with risk. And this is the uh, mid 1980s, uh, mid to late 1980s. Uh, a couple of Economists who came from the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, where they were familiar with the FHA, uh, these guys which is the Federal Housing Administration, which uh, is the federal agency that does uh, high-risk lending. That the, they're the ones who are, who are really supposed to be doing high-risk lending. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are supposed to be doing what's called investment quality lending. Which the conforming mean, loans. The well, conforming not only in terms of the magnitude, of yeah. magnitude, but conforming in terms of having enough of a borrower down payment, uh, having enough of a borrower qualification in terms of credit, and so on. So they're supposed to be doing sort of high-grade lending under their, under their charges. The FHA, the Federal F Housing Agency, is supposed to be lending to higher-risk people. Yeah. And it's a government program. It's government. not private. It's a government agency. Right. Do they lend money? Yes. Do they still exist? Yes. They periodically go bust. Uh, somebody recently suggested that they're probably bust again. But, uh, you know, they... Um, you know, they're, they're, in theory, they could be making a profit, but uh, right. anyway. So, um, so anyway, so my so these two economists, Chet Foster and Bob Van Order, had a uh, straightforward theory about mortgage default. The one that if people, if borrowers' equity goes negative, that is, if the value of the loan becomes more than the value of the house because the value of the house has gone down, then they're much more likely to default than not. Uh, if it's an investor-owned property, people are more likely to to default than not. Like if you live in the house, you you'll sometimes try to make the payments even if uh, if the loan balance is above your house price. But you wouldn't want to do that if you're uh, an Just investor. investor. Um, so on. So they had, and uh, this is I call it the Foster Van Order mortgage default model. And and what it required, and the clever part about it is that they would have you simulate different possible paths for house prices because house prices are variable and so you would we would simulate different possible paths for house prices and say well if on a, on average this is how many defaults we expect and under a severe stress scenario uh, we would expect even more and so we priced mortgages based both on this sort of average and on the uh, we also incorporated the stress scenario uh, because we our view was Freddie Mac would hold enough capital to survive under this stress scenario. So that was Good called idea. a stress test. Yes. Good idea. Yeah. Although sort of a worst-case scenario backstop situation where you want to make sure you don't 
Yeah, we don't we, die. One of the, the, the one of the first it's like putting food in the basement. Yeah, one of the first stress Water tests. In the basement. One of the first stress tests we used was what we called a Moody's scenario, where I think house prices fell by ten percent a year for four years and stayed flat thereafter. I don't think they do as severe a stress test now, but that was uh, what we what we had in mind. And in the nineteen eighties. Prices in many areas did fall. Absolutely. Right? We had problems in Texas when there was a drop in oil prices, problems in Massachusetts when there had been kind of a, a spike and then a decline. So the, we had these regional uh, house price declines, and we observed uh, you know, that mortgage defaults went up uh, when that happened. So, uh, so we, we had these models that were based on, on uh, some semblance of reality, and we used them to... Uh, to price the risk on the mortgages, that was so. That was my my role was helping out with uh, putting those models together, and I understood them. And I think by the time I left Freddie Mac uh, in the '90s, I would say there were dozens of people from executive level to lower level who were quite familiar with how the basic thrust of that model. And one important characteristic there is that the amount of the down payment matters a lot. A 20% down payment mortgage is much, much safer than a 5% down payment mortgage. Well, well ob- the most obvious, two reasons, right? The, the, the borrower has more of a stake, but the other reason is it reduces the odds that the value of the equity is going to fall below the price of the house. Right. You, you, if you project p- potential house price paths, it takes a pretty severe decline in house prices to overcome a 20% down payment, whereas it only takes a, a 5% decline in house prices to overcome a 5% down payment. So obviously, Freddie and presumably Fannie were aware that there were risks involved when housing prices went down. And the weird part of today's story is that, I mean, the situation we're in now is that people act like it's a, it's never happened before. Uh, you know, this housing bubble, whether it's a bubble or not, we recently had Robert Schiller on, who who is a strong advocate of the of the claim that it is a bubble, that it was irrational. But whether it's rational or not, the housing prices have gone up and down in the past, and it didn't lead to the bankruptcy of major financial institutions and. Uh, a systemic crisis in the housing market. So what has changed in the last 20 years that has made things different? The nature of the loans. Okay, so what happened? So what happened is back back in the day when I was when I was at Freddie Mac, the standard loan that Freddie Mac would buy, the standard conforming loan had a 20% down payment. The 20% down payment has now gone the way of the dodo bird. The typical Mortgage loans, I think 5% is now high for a down payment. I mean, you, you, you were seeing 3%, you were seeing no percent, you were seeing all sorts of exotic things. Interest-only loans, were, uh, so, which goes back to the, the situation before the Great Depression where people were just only paying interest on the loan. They weren't even paying off any principal. So there were all these innovative uh, mortgage ideas. And... The, the main characteristic of a low down payment mortgage loan, what that means is that the borrower's equity tends to consist entirely of house price appreciation. So as I, what I like to say is that when prices are rising, everyone can buy a home with one of these low down payment mortgages because they're always accumulating equity. You don't even care if there's fraud going on as long as the value of the, the house price is constantly You don't care rising. meaning you, the originator, the, the originator or the buyer of the security. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, when house prices start to fall, nobody can borrow because there's almost no you know, there's there's no such thing as a safe loan uh, 
uh, a safe 3% down payment loan when pr house prices are falling. So you really create a very unstable housing market when you permit low down payment loans. So how did we get and, – and now let's – so that's one innovation, which I, I'm a little bit puzzled by because there's always the question of why didn't it happen before. Uh, it's always a good question. I, I would just mention that whenever people see a crisis, you always want to ask I, – let's take just Fannie Mae generally. People say, well, it was a recipe for disaster. They privatized the gains and they socialized the losses, meaning the investors who invested <coughs> in Fannie Mae's securitized uh, offerings uh, would reap the benefits. And if the government was implicitly going to pay off any losses, that is going to encourage recklessness on the part of, of Fannie Mae. Then, but the puzzle is, well, okay, why didn't that happen in 1970 or 68 or 73? Why, why did it for 40 years – quote, turn out okay, or at least look okay, was it a house of cards the whole time? So that can't, so one piece of the story of, of these, this crisis in the housing market is the, is the introduction of low down payment to zero down payment loans at a time when housing prices were appreciating very rapidly, which everyone thought they were okay. But we also have the subprime part. We have the innovation of loans being made to people who normally would not have qualified. So that's going to play into it as well, correct? Yeah, and that's an innovation that came not from Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, but from outside. Um, Wall Street discovered securitization, and I'm not sure entirely how they were able to pull it off, but they were able to sell securities to investors without a federal agency guaranteeing them. And uh, oh, that's all right. Well, that's all fine. The time. Well, but <laughs> I, I'm not sure why. You know what? What it was that made the investors willing to buy these buy these securities? Uh, but they were. Well, a lot of all investments are risky, right? right? But so they, but they no guarantee. Why is that a problem? I well, here's here's how it turned into a problem. <laughs> okay, I understand. Turn into one, yeah. Um, what what I think was going on, and, and this was an innovation that I was involved in at Freddie Mac, is that. Um, we discovered that uh, instead of having to have a human underwriter look over a loan file and go by the uh, twitch of her nose, as, as, as some of them put it, uh, decide whether a borrower is qualified, we decided that uh, something that had been in place for a while called credit scoring, which is We a, talked about this, I think, in another podcast. Yeah, it's, which is a sort of statistical approach to, um, uh, to evaluating a mortgage borrower, we found that credit scoring was effective. Um, the private market also found that credit scoring was effective. And they, start, they started doing credit scoring in an environment where house prices had only gone up. And so they looked and they said, well, it seems like if you have enough of a credit score, you never get a default because they, they hadn't observed mortgage loans in an environment of defaults. Remember, we, so we talked about prices. the falling prices. So they, they hadn't observed falling prices the way Freddie had gone through falling prices. So, for, so Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae had some an institutional history that said, you know, no matter how good a credit score is, you know, we back in the you know 70s and 80s, we lost, we we had some mortgage defaults occur because of uh, regions where house prices fell. Well, the Wall Street. Uh, securitizers didn't have that experience to go by, and so they just became more and more enamored of their ability to 
uh, originate loans to seemingly uh, underqualified borrowers at low down payments and get away with it. Because as long as prices were going up, you would never get a default. And so they got away with it for a while. And so they made uh, riskier and riskier loans. Now, the sort of what's wrong with this picture is that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, instead of standing their ground and saying, okay, well, you know, Wall Street, you can do what you want. We're going to stick to what we know, which is making safe loans to qualified borrowers. They started to follow the Wall Street firms. Well, they're somewhat in competition with them, right? They're somewhat in competition. They wanted to maintain market share. Uh, and also, on top of that, they were being leaned on by the by people in Congress. Because people in Congress were looking at Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and say, well, we give you this guarantee for a public purpose, um, but these Wall Street people are lending to more sort of low-income marginal borrowers than you are. You know, we look at your books, and you're not lending in you know low-income neighborhoods and to minorities because you know those loans, in effect, were being st stolen by Wall Street firms. So, so you know, you're not doing your job. You need to do more of it. Uh, and then on top of that, both Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae had new management teams in place uh, at the top. And I know, in particular, at Freddie Mac, the uh, the attitude, the institutional attitude, uh, sort of prior to 2003, had been to treat the uh, requirements to pr provide support for low-income housing as a constraint, and sort of you maximize profits subject to that constraint. The new management sort of saw that as a mission, and it's sort of like more like achieving profits was a constraint, but you tried to maximize your support for low-income housing. We got to stop there because that's a huge that's a huge issue, and I and I want to I, I want to go a little bit into the into the detail of quote the government leaning on. So let's let's get a little bit into the nuts and bolts of day-to-day -day operations. Uh, or what the rules of the game are at these places. You, you just said, well, we give you this guarantee, but we've already said that it's not a real guarantee. It's, quote, only an implicit guarantee. So There is actually a real component. There was a credit line that was established with the Treasury, but it was a very small credit line, but just, just so you know. And there, and there were also a number of other special sort of formal legal privileges. But in the day-to-day -day operations, mm -hmm. um, what I read, which is – you know, maybe not correct, is uh, there are board members of these organizations of Freddie and Fannie that are government appointed, correct? No, I don't believe so. Because I think, I think, I think, quote, President, President Bush, quote, didn't appoint uh, either supposedly some, you know, his, his, his defenders say it's out, it was out of protest. Some say he didn't like the idea of it. I have no idea. But I, when you say they leaned on them, I don't know what, the, what does that mean? That means congressmen, individual congressmen calling the chief executives on the carpet and saying... In public hearings or in private meetings? I assume in private, uh, but that it, some of it may have happened publicly. There's also um, a regulator for... It's called the... It was called the Office of Federal Housing Enterprise Oversight, and it's now called something else under the, under the new housing bill. So it's, but it's a regulator... And the regulator is charged with uh, making, sh making sure of two things. One is that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae are adequately capitalized. And the other is that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae meet uh, affordable housing goals, which were legislated in uh, 
back in the early 90s uh, when the when this latest regulator was created. Well, not the latest regulator, but the that role N minus regulator yeah. number N minus one. So what what does that mean? Affordable housing goals means that certain portion of their uh, purchases each year must support low-income either borrowers or renters. And this agency, this office of whatever, was was required to monitor whether they were complying with this goal and, exactly. and whether they were viable. Right. So let's come to the present. How do we get to the fix now where um, their stock is uh, effectively worth zero and all they've got left is, are some assets of of unknown of unknown value. Okay, so what the, the bonds? Right. So what happened is uh, they started suffering lots of default losses. That is, you know, a lot of borrowers were defaulting, and so Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae ended up owning properties and those and having to sell those properties at a loss. So they started experiencing losses. That had happened before. That had happened before, but this was like probably an unprecedented amount right now. Um, in part because they made a lot of these subprime loans, things that weren't conforming. I mean, back in the 80s, at least, they had they had made conforming loans, so when house prices fell, they had this big equity cushion to start with. When you make these loans at 5% or 3% or 0% down, uh, then you're in, in a lot more trouble. So, um, so, there's, so now... Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae's bondholders are starting to ask the question, well, what does this implicit guarantee mean? Does it mean we really will get paid or maybe not? And so they started demanding a higher and higher risk premium. And at a, a higher risk premium to uh, effectively lend money to Fannie Mae, which in turn is lending money to uh, banks who are using it for... Or, or, or even Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are using that money just to sort of keep keep going. I mean, just to sort of to pay the, off. The, the, well, they, remember, they they've got mortgage payments coming into them that are coming in slowly over time. Uh, in part because you know they're holding a lot of these loans in their portfolios. They're not just they didn't they didn't just sell them off. We we described that securitized model where they sell them off, but uh, most of them they actually held in their portfolio and financed with debt. And some of that debt is short term. They use a mix of short term and long term debt uh, because you have to have that kind of flexibility to deal with the fact that mortgages can either be short term or long term assets depending on whether they're prepaying rapidly or not. So you have to have this mix of short term debt and long term debt. So you're constantly in the debt market raising money. And so you wake up in July, and instead of being able to raise money at the same rate that the Treasury raises, plus you know a, a small premium, you're ra you're having to raise it at one percent or two percent higher, and you're in that position that we described earlier of the savings and loans of where that your cost of funds is now greater than the uh, interest that you're earning on your assets, and so that was so that's why as soon as Investor bond investors started to lose confidence in them. Their interest rate starts to go up. Then more people lose confidence because the higher interest rate cuts into their profits even more. And so it it almost instantly snowballed on itself to the point where they went from, let's say in March, everyone thinking they're just fine, to July, 
they become non-viable because their cost of funds with the risk premium attached is high enough that they're guaranteed not to be profitable. So, so it became a self it became a self-fulfilling prophecy that they were not viable by that point. And we come to a situation now where, uh, again, we're taping this uh, conversation September 12, 2008, about, what, a week ago, five days ago? How long has it been? Uh, a week or so, uh, Secretary of Treasury Paulson uh, puts them into what is called conservator conservatorship. Yeah, and his intent there is to say to anyone who uh, who invests in their debt now, look – you will get your money back. So don't pay, you shouldn't force Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae to pay anything really more than what the, the Treasury rate would be. Borrowing from them is like borrowing from the U.S. Treasury. So we can drive that interest rate down and hopefully return those companies to profitability by lowering their interest rate down to what the Treasury rate would be. And so the next question would be, so, so who's minding the store? Uh, the CEOs are being forced out yes. uh, as part of this deal. So now who makes the decisions at Freddie and Fannie as to what's a good loan now that they've been told that, that their bonds are going to be guaranteed 100 percent by the U.S. government? The implicit guarantee has become an explicit guarantee, at least for the short run, although mm -hmm. there's some uncertainty about that, how long that short run will last. The so, but who decides? In the now, short run, how do we how do we keep this from being a, a wound that bleeds forever? The well, you can't be sure that the wound won't bleed forever. But there are only two companies, so it's not like the savings and loans where there you know there were literally thousands of them. There are only two companies, and the two companies will make their decisions, you know, using their ordinary staff and you know as they ordinarily make them. But they will have a regulator standing over them very closely. So the, 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 the regulator that formerly was just sort of, oh, give us a report every quarter on your capital condition or whatever, uh, will probably be monitoring them on a very close, almost day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I wonder guess. what that means exactly, right? That's an interesting statement, and I understand the intent of it, but... I think the I think what it means is that they will not be allowed to take wild gambles. Like they won't they they can't just sort of say, okay, well we're in desperate shape. We've got to invest in really risky assets. Hope it works so that we survive. That that's what the regulator can stop. Otherwise, I think they just basically conduct normal mortgage business. They buy loans uh, that they would ordinarily buy. They may even buy more loans than they would ordinarily buy because they're being encouraged to support the housing market. But they're not supposed to take outlandish risks. So here's my claim. Uh, I'm going to make two claims, and and we're, we're getting close to the end of time. Uh, uh, we may run a little over this week because uh, it's such a complicated or maybe subject. maybe we should go on for another hour and split it into two, <laughs> uh, or just burden the only those people who are deeply enough interested to follow the whole two hours. I don't know, but here's 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 my claim. My first claim is that uh, the government has acted like uh, Adam Smith's um, in the theory of moral sentiments. He talks about the 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 man of system who surveys the, the world as a giant chessboard and moves the pieces around without any acknowledgement that the pieces have their own movement. And we'll put a reference up to that on the web. It's a beautiful quote. 
Uh, so the first thing is the government has intervened in the housing market in all these complicated ways uh, that all interact with one another. There, there's 50 others we haven't even mentioned. So eventually the whole thing has gone belly up and has now become a crisis. Um, the second thing to observe is that it's very hard to figure out who's to blame here. Uh, we have uh, – is it is it Lyndon Baines Johnson who, who privatized this and creating an inherently uh, dysfunctional organization? Or is it the members of Congress who failed in the oversight? Is it the greedy CEOs uh, who took risks uh, without worrying about the consequences because they had the backing of the government? Is it us for ignoring the calls and claims of people like Larry Summers, who I know back in 1999 said this thing was unstable, it's going to be a problem? Um, and so, so my second claim is that this is a what we talked about some what the other day in a, in a in our podcast on my recent book that government has an emergent aspect to it that it's easy to say the government did this or the government did that, but there's no such thing as the government. Uh, it's actually a, a set of individual actors acting in their own self-interest, uh, members of Congress, regulators, CEOs of these quasi-public-private organizations. Then the third question, I, third thing I want to think about is, well, where do we go from here? Um, we're just going to hope it goes away, that, that this oversight is going to get them back on their feet, and we're going to go back to business as usual. Uh, what ought to we be hoping for? It seems to me that in the current situation – where uh, gains were privatized and losses were socialized, uh, that's an inherently bad idea. We should get rid of that kind of model. If worried about people with low income who can't afford a house or have unstable employment histories, politically we might decide it's worthwhile to subsidize or pay for or do things for loans for those folks, in which case we might expand the, the FHA. But this current situation seems like uh, just, just broken. Well, it it's certainly broken now, uh, and I, I absolutely share your characterization. It's it's something that emerged out of the interaction of you know, sort of finance, individual behavior, politics, and it's still emerging. We don't have. It's not as if there is um, there is some czar who's going to now take over and organize this. They've basically kicked this down the road. Uh, you know, the explicitly they explicit. said this is going to be bizarrely. They said, "Well, we'll let the next administration solve this." Yeah. Strange thing. Well, I think the reason they had to is because uh, the Democrats in Congress wouldn't let the Republicans do what they probably would have wanted to do, which was just shut the agencies down altogether. They would have, they, they, they wouldn't allow that to happen, and so it, it will have to be resolved by the next administration. Um, in terms of what ought to happen. I'm, I'm going to step back and say this. So um, what should happen to the housing market and what should happen with mortgages, the mortgage market? In my view, the, the state of the housing market is that we have an excess of housing. The, I read I, – I couldn't believe this and I often almost hesitate to state it, but I read in one article, I think it was by Kevin Hassett, that there are 18 million – unoccupied housing units in the United States at this point. Out of a stock of what, though? I don't know if 18 million is a big number or a small number. Well, considering there are, what, about 150 million households? Um, yeah, then, like so then Maybe less. Yeah, I, th I think that's a big number. I think 2% unoccupied is okay, sort of 
it sounds like more like 10%, and that sounds like a lot. Um, so we have, the point is we have plenty of housing. You know, we, don't, we don't need more housing. But, uh, and the other thing, what I think we desperately need is a housing market that's balanced in terms of supply, demand, and price. You need a market price where supply and demand are in balance. Because right now, everyone who's sitting there thinking, I'm not sure I want to buy a house because there's all these unoccupied housing and I just could be buying into a losing asset. So somehow you need to get back to balance, uh, which to me says you stop trying to levitate housing prices. But politically, levitating housing prices is like the big thing to do. Always attractive. Um, Okay. The price of houses needs to fall to soak up that 18, and it is falling. Yeah, it has fallen, and maybe it has fallen enough. Maybe we've gone for enough years of low home building that you know that we're close to balance. I don't know, but I, I would like that. That's that would be a goal I would have. It's not a goal that politicians have because that's that suggests that home building would be sluggish and people would. Uh, lose equity in their homes, feel, not feel as wealthy, and that. So politicians are trying to avoid that, but I think you know we, we have to get there sooner no or later. To, no way to avoid it. No right. way to avoid it. This uh, is a footnote. When prices were going up ten and fifteen and twenty percent in some cities, of course everybody was cheerful and happy and had higher uh, wealth on paper at least. And somehow that's when prices fall, but not even all the way back to what they were in say ten years ago shouldn't be a crisis by that in and of itself and yet politicians seem to act like you know that this is emotionally too too demanding for us to deal with yeah right so you have that and then then the, then there's a question of the mortgage market and ask yourself do we you know just in the abstract does the united states have too much mortgage debt or too little mortgage debt and my first thought is we probably have too much that you know we'd probably be you know that people would probably be better off with sort of relatively more equity in their homes and less debt but in politics we we act as if there's always too little mortgage debt so we constantly shove mortgage debt at people through these various subsidies whether it's FHA Fannie Mae Freddie Mac and so on. Or the tax deductibility of housing. Tax deductibility of the, uh, well, well, tax deductibility of mortgage interest mortgage payments. It would be one payments. thing if it would be tax deductibility of housing, but it's tax deductibility yeah. of mortgage interest payments. So uh, we act as if as if Every, mortgage debt is a positive externality, that, that, having, that for people to have more mortgage debt that if I have mortgage debt, that benefits you and everybody else. Because you, 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 you subsidize it like it's a public good. Well, the claim is that somehow, and I, I think this is absurd, but it, but people buy into it, and obviously politicians sell this dream, this theme, uh, that every American should own own a home. But, and but as if somehow that makes the right. world more stable okay. and peaceful and loving. Right. We, we can question that. But even if you believe that, why not subsidize the down payment rather than the mortgage? Okay, I mean, here's that's an out of the box thought. Instead yeah. of subsidizing the debt yeah. that you get when you buy the loan, why not subsidize the down payment and be done with it uh, that way? Um, but the uh, but the notion that this is a again a positive externality and a public good when in fact it's we've seen its gigantic negative externality. It's like it created this huge crisis uh, and the, all this interlocking financial distress. 
based on it. it. It's like the world's biggest negative externality, and yet we subsidize it. Yeah. So, so what? How would we get to a world where we? What? What? What policies might make this market more stable? Well, what I w- would advocate is let housing prices be. So drop the political objective of raising housing prices, drop the political objective of keeping home builders active. Um, so, luck on those two, but let's, yeah, right. let's, let's okay. dream. We're uh, dreaming. That's I, I, the I think I wrote recently that the probability of my being named mortgage czar <laughs> is pretty low. Um, then for mortgages, I really think we should go back to the old-fashioned uh, old-fashioned mortgages issued by old-fashioned banks to old-fashioned qualified borrowers. So I'd like to see the 20% down payment make a comeback. I'd like to see banks making the loans. Why, why banks? Because with Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, you have these two gigantic institutions that can't be merged with anyone else. So when they go into default, the only thing you can do is throw into cons- – or when they get into trouble, the only thing you can do is put – is basically have the government take them over, and, and and we've talked about this before privately, you and I off off the air. The worry, or maybe we talked about it on the air. The worry is, is that if you they went through a standard bankruptcy proceeding, the amount of time and effort it would take would so uh, to disentangle who owes who what would cause all kinds of ripple effects supposedly through the rest of the system. Yeah, oh, you you couldn't. The financial system would col- would really would collapse if you just said. Let these let these guys go in, into default because uh, there's just about every financial institution, either directly or indirectly, has uh, assets that are backed by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac securities, and so every financial institution would then be called into question in terms of what what's the value of what's on its books. Be unclear as to what it would receive from this bankruptcy proceeding until the judge ruled and blah, blah, blah. And, and until the mortgage, not, it's not just that, it's, yeah, it's until the mortgages pay off. It's just, it would be just an incredible mess. Just, uh, yeah, you, you'd want to be, you'd, you'd, we'd, all, we'd be selling apples out on the street to make money because any, anyone who pays our salary would, would not, would no longer have the assets to do it. So go ahead. So we go back to these old-fashioned mortgages with banks because okay. So the I like the old-fashioned twenty percent down payment, thirty-year fixed-rate loan uh, because it it's a loan that pays off. It's a loan where the borrower has equity, so you don't have this unstable housing market that goes way up as housing prices. You, you don't bring new borrowers into the market just because housing prices are rising, and you don't drive borrowers out of the market just because housing prices are falling. So you get a much more stable housing market. With the 30-year fixed rate, People, everyone understands their mortgage. You can't have these arguments about what's predatory lending or anything. Everyone understands what a 30-year fixed rate mortgage is. There's no confusion there. Um, and by with banks, rather than this duopoly, you have a more manageable process if one of them fails. If one of them fails, you merge it with somebody else, and, it, and it's more feasible. The Now, what hap- we had that... You know, back in this, you know, from the 30s to the 60s with the savings and loans, and what happened is you had inflation get out of control, and this 30-year fixed-rate loan was not a viable product when uh, you had highly variable inflation. So part of the deal of my uh, my proposal for the 
you know, going back to the 30-year fixed rate loan with the 20% down payment is that you have to make sure that you keep inflation low and, and with low variable, variability. So that okay. has to go along with so, it. So here, here, good, good luck on that too. Uh, but here, here's the next question. Um, we talk a lot here at Econ Talk about self-organizing systems and, and feedback loops and emergent order. You shouldn't have to make the case for what the right mortgage is. That right mortgage should emerge from market forces and you'd think it would start to emerge. So the question is, in this, as a as a backlash against this uh, current situation, you think we would say, well, we acted profligately. We acted in ways that were not wise. We lent out money to people who couldn't pay it back. We lent it out in ways that was um, difficult to. Uh, be sounds confident. like a Yom Kippur speech. What? <laughs> it sounds like a Yom Kippur speech. Why? <laughs> we have acted profitably. Yeah, right. Well, we well yeah we is a bad we, we is a bad <laughs> word in this situation. But but the actors involved as individual uh, players have have performed badly. So you'd think they would step forward and say, well, now down come down the road, we're gonna we're gonna change this. We're gonna do things like you just said, and the government in turn would. Um, forget about the inflation for a minute, but the government in turn would, would change the rules, etc. Now, presumably, there, is, there are going to be political forces that stop that natural market process from happening because the political consequences of that are not going to be attractive. Right. No, there's no way, politically. I mean, you know, yeah, Barney Frank and Christopher Dodd are not going to allow that to happen. They, they, their vision of a housing market is a housing market that's uh, got a heavy involvement of com agencies like Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, and in the, that those agencies in turn will make profits from ordinary middle-class borrower lending, and they will recycle those profits into loans to more marginal borrowers. That's their vision of the housing market. Yeah, my, my, my main problem with that vision to start with is that is the accountability problem. Uh, it's an interesting argument that, that there are an insufficient number of houses being owned by low-income people or high-risk people. Then we ought to fund those loans through an explicit government agency where the cost is apparent. We're now funding it through um, an implicit government agency, the U.S. Treasury, which is, seems to me remarkably uh, ill-equipped to um, see this down the road with all the consequences. No, it, it, I think... Yeah, we, we've probably, the de developments of the past two weeks have taken what was a messy situation and probably for the long term made it messier, although in the short term it's sort of been a, res a rescue and it's prevented a financial market meltdown. In the long term, uh, the, the potential for messiness has gone up. Well, I hope those of you out there listening all the way to this point have found this of of interest and, and useful and educational. I, I'd like to hear from you, actually, if you've enjoyed or not enjoyed this. It's a, it's a more technical discussion than we've usually had, and it is a more uh, topical discussion than we've usually had. Um, we will put some links up to Arnold's recent study for the Cato Institute uh, on Freddie and Fannie, as well as some of his posts at EconLog uh, with some, I know, some nice numerical examples of how some of these processes work that we've been talking about. And uh, Arnold, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. Arnold, when we recorded today's podcast a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at a meltdown of Freddie and Fannie. 
And we talked about the history of the two organizations and their role in the mortgage market. Well, their meltdown has since spread quite a bit wider, as I think all of our listeners know. And I'd like to talk for a few minutes in this postscript about how we got to where we are. What are your thoughts? Okay. Seems like you know you were we were supposed to be doing current events two weeks ago, and now it feels like ancient history. Um, how we got to where we are, I think, uh, is has to do with the way credit markets in the mortgage market developed. So uh, there were some private sector developments that were important, and there were public sector developments that were important. The private sector developments that were important were first of all credit scoring, which uh, treated as a fantastic new innovation in underwriting. It, it was a decent innovation, but it took place at the same time that house prices were rising, and so people got confused about how much of their success in uh, writing underwriting mortgages that paid off had to do with credit scoring and how much had to do with house prices going up, and they, they under underestimated the importance of house prices going up, so they thought they were better than they were at using credit scoring. This was mostly private sector firms. That, what was used before credit scoring? Um, before credit scoring, it was humans kind of looking over credit reports yeah. and using rules of thumb. That disappeared uh, by the end of the 1990s, I think, and it was mostly replaced by credit scoring. Uh, but the credit scoring got picked up by lots of private Wall Street firms. They started jumping in the bandwagon. A lot of a lot of the new companies that kind of were, were some of the first to go bankrupt. Uh, some of the new uh, securitization firms uh, kind of jumped on using that. So that was one. And then the second was this whole phenomenon of derivatives, which I describe as trying to pass risk around, kind of like the old maid in the card game, old maid. Um, so the, you know, you w let's say you wouldn't invest in a uh, risky mortgage, but somebody tells you, well, you know what, we'll package it with a whole bunch of other mortgages and we'll give you what's called a senior portion, in which case you won't suffer any losses until at least 10% of the loans default. And you say, mm, well... I might try that, but I don't know. And then they say, okay, well, what if we add this? We'll go to AIG Insurance, and they'll give you an insurance contract that if you, against any default losses, you say, oh, okay, maybe I'll do that. And But even more and more of these layers of risk insurance were, la were layered on, and to make good on those layers, the companies had to have in their mind a trading strategy that involved ultimately having to sell short the securities and the stocks of some of the companies that were provide, that were providing the insurance. To hedge against the possibility that they might not be around. Right. So if you see, for example, if, if you have, well, uh, it would get too complicated, but I'll just say that you, um, as part of your strategy, you, your contingency plan, if things start to go bad, is to start selling some of these securities short in the market. And that works for an individual, just as, as an individual, it works for you as a contingency plan to say, well, if I think my bank is going to get in trouble, I'll go down and withdraw my money. 
that make that seems to make sense as a contingency plan, but if everybody has the same contingency plan and tries to execute it at once, it's a run on the bank. And that's more or less a description of what happened with these derivatives markets, is that everyone tried to execute their contingency plan at once, and they, collectively those plans were not compatible. So in this story, this is um, a story not unrelated to, to Taleb's arguments about uh, risk management, that people yeah. thought they understood the risk because they had a sophisticated model, but they were really missing the systemic picture. Yeah, even if the, if their model of an individual risk was right, they didn't understand that collectively they couldn't all execute their contingency plans at the same time. Okay, so that's the private sector problems. What, what's going on in the public sector? The public sector, I think the main issue is that there people... You know, People in Congress and uh, in Democratic administrations, certainly, and even maybe and, and Republican administrations, because the Bush um, administration perhaps is, it's um, done the same thing. They, what I what I see them doing is encouraging mortgage loans with low down payments, and mortgage loans with low down payments, as I think we talked about in the main part of the podcast, are inherently destabilizing, and. Um, you know, one thing I'll say about the private sector players, you know, most of them have taken a big fall. A lot of them are bankrupt. A lot of the executives are out of their jobs. The people who believe that low down payment mortgages are a nice thing to do for affordable housing uh, still have their jobs. And in fact, are very prominent in the legislation going on now. They're you know, people like Barney Frank and Chris Dodd. Well, the reason I threw in the Bush administration is that uh, I'll put a link up to my blog at Cafe Hayek, the category I've been gathering examples where government intervened in housing markets in the last, uh, oh, 15 or so years. And in 1997, uh, Andrew Cuomo, who was uh, Se- Secretary of HUD, Housing and Urban Development, wanted uh, Fannie and Freddie to count as part of their affordable housing mandate uh, the purchases of subprime mortgages and gave them uh, a, a real measure of that, 40%. Excuse me, I think it was low and moderate income. I'm not sure it was, it was subprime. But he wanted a tangible goal for them to achieve in, uh, in the making increasing home ownership, which was an explicit goal of the Clinton administration. And unlike other HUD management of, of Freddie and Fannie, I think he actually uh, was going to do something about it. Under the Bush administration, that rose to 52% in, I think, 2006, and Fannie and Freddie met that goal. 52% of their financing was to low- and moderate-income housing, and it turned out to be subprime. Between 2004 and 2006, they bought $434 billion worth of subprime mortgages to meet their uh, HUD requirements. Now, they, they met them and then some. I suspect they thought it was profitable, and it was at the time, so I think it was a little bit of a... Uh, being thrown into the briar patch, perhaps. But um, it's clear that both uh, Bush and Clinton wanted to brag about increases in home ownership. And the Bush administration had a zero-down program for, for low-income people, just a plain separate federal program and initiative. So I think it's a problem um, of the modern era, last 10 years or so. That's, that's a fair point. It was a bipartisan commitment to what I call home borrowership, where you <laughs> You know, the person does. I don't think the person really owns the home if they've only put two or three percent down or zero down. So they're borrowing the home, and 
like a big commitment to home borrowership. So <clears throat> we've got this uh, private and public thing going on at the same time. Of course, they feed on each other. Uh, we had Robert Schiller on a couple weeks ago, and he made the case for a bubble. And I went back, as uh, you were more familiar with these data than I am, but I went back and looked at the case Schiller Housing Index, and it's pretty flat until about 1996. Then it takes off like a rocket. And a lot of people debated whether this increase was real or not, whether it was based on fundamentals or zoning laws, restrictions on land use, or a bubble, a speculative mania that people were um, obsessed with. And Schiller argues for speculative mania, calls it, in fact, a social contagion. And I was I'm sympathetic. It's an interesting argument. I raised some points on both on the other side, but he has, you know, he had an answer for it. But having now reviewed the role that the government has played in subsidizing mortgages via Fannie and Freddie so dramatically, the increase was so dramatic through these HUD programs. We haven't mentioned the Community Reinvestment Act, which also became a, a way to encourage new home ownership in low-income uh, urban areas. Uh, it's pretty clear that the federal government subsidized the price of housing, which it's always done, but at an increasing rate in the last decade. And surely that is part of the reason the whole thing fell apart. I think it's part of the reason, Russ. But to be fair, uh, a lot of the subprime lending took off in the private sector. Again, these people believed in credit scoring. They believed in derivatives. They, they kind of assembled the technology to make these risky loans appear to be low risk. And uh, the problem really was, in, the, in my view, the bubble gets created because when you have low down payment, uh, any house price appreciation makes the loan good and it makes the borrower feel like they're, they're making money. Anyone who uh, gets into the realist, you know, into the home buying game feels like they're making money at it, and so it just encourages more and more people to get in. And so I think that the the low down payment uh, really is what enabled the bubble to take place. And I think the low down payment came both from private sector innovation and uh, government encouragement. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I uh, think it's a – which leaves us – I don't disagree. And, and another point about government's role is you could say government's role ought to have been to step in and put a check on the derivatives and put a check on – the uh, unwise use of, of credit scoring. I and mean, if you believe the government somehow is wiser and able to regulate, so uh, you could also accuse them of having an error of, of omission as well as of, of their errors of commission. Right, which some people suggest that, although, as you point out, given that some sophisticated uh, and smart folk ignored that risk when their own money was at stake in their jobs, it's not surprising that government didn't notice the, the, the systemic risk. Although I think the last question I want to ask you is, well, maybe the next to last, but one of the last questions I want to ask you is the following. If uh, you suggested in your blog that uh, at EconLog that a 20% down mortgage is what would emerge in an unsubsidized um, market, do you want to talk about why you argued that and then talk about whether you think this credit scoring was enough to push private sector alone to that world? Um, I guess I believe that would emerge if you if you were restricted to players who came into the market understanding default risk. I use uh, the, the classic default risk model from J. 
Chet Foster and Bob Van Order. I don't know if I gave those names. Yeah, you talked about it before. But it it focuses on the home buyer's equity and what happens to risk. And I know with with Freddie Mac, (laughs) we sat there and calculated that if it was a really low down payment mortgage, the amount of capital that we would have to hold to protect ourselves in case house prices uh, behaved adversely was prohibitively high. And so you you know you would would not you know your pricing models and your uh, capital allocation models would tell you not to buy those mortgages. I think the same thing would happen with any private sector firm because in order to be able to lend money in the mortgage market, you have to have a decent credit rating yourself because you're you know don't have a good credit rating yourself, you can't borrow at reasonable rates. So the whole thing depends on uh, being able, having a good credit rating yourself, and that in turn means that you have to be very careful about the risks you take, and so I don't think you would see these low down payment mortgages in a private market. Uh, Let me close by asking you about the systemic risk issue, right? A lot of people who are anxious about an enormously enlarged role for government in financial markets, which seems to be on the horizon, have suggested, well, you know, at some point, maybe we should have just let the pieces fall where they might. Uh, if we had let Bear Stearns die without trying to recreate them uh, with that $29 billion loan guarantee, just to recap that history, uh, when Bear Stearns was, people were worried that Bear Stearns couldn't make their payments on a Monday morning, the Federal Reserve uh, found a buyer in J.P. Morgan and got J.P. Morgan to buy what was a very messy situation by saying, well, we know there's some uncertain value stuff on the books. We'll guarantee that. That's $29 billion worth of subprime stuff. So kind of a tragically small number. At the time, it seemed large. I remember feeling, wow, $29 billion. Why'd they do that? It was a mistake, or maybe a mistake. People said if they hadn't done it, maybe the whole world would have collapsed. But if they'd let that fall apart at the time, the, the real puzzle, and I, you and I have talked about this privately. We may have talked about it in the last podcast. I don't remember. But everyone says that if we don't save it, it's going to fall apart. Um, do you have and any more thoughts? Apart. It has kind of fallen apart, but it's uh, not clear why. Well, I think, you but, know... Hang on. I, I want you to talk about what... Don't talk about what's on the table now, but talk about what you would do if you think... If you if you were... Uh, if you had your druthers. How might we reduce the systemic risk going forward, given that we're in a bad situation? Forget whether it's an ideal. Okay. Um, you know, I guess you can ask two questions. So what can we do about, in some sense, the sunk cost of the systemic risk that's already kind of blown up in our faces? And I think that by the time the Bear Stearns deal came around, you know, the problems in the financial system were there. And so what, the choice you made there wasn't going to make a difference either way. I mean, either way, we were going to have the subsequent problems with Lehman, uh, Freddie and Fannie, and so on. So I, I, you, know, it was, uh, <coughs> you can't second-guess that decision really one way or the other. So what to do given the situation, I think... The issue to me is not to save Wall Street. The issue to me is how do you sort of enable the healthy financial institutions in the country, and I think there are some, uh, 
to stay in business so that people can continue to get mortgage loans, um, you know, loans for small business, and so on. And you know, my suggestion on that consistently has been to reduce capital requirements for new reasonable lending so that uh, banks have the, you know, the... Their challenge now is that they want to make a good loan, they have to uh, show enough capital on their books to do that, and they have a hard time raising capital because people are a little unsure about what's in their portfolios. And There's their portfolio. a lot of risk involved in lowering capital requirements and that some of these banks might turn out to have enough bad stuff in their balance sheets that um, they're actually letting them expand and uh, ultimately increasing the cost if they have to be uh, put into receivership. But you know, comparing that risk to the risks that are involved in some of the other proposals out there, I think it's a risk I, I would much rather take. Uh, have you heard time. about this issue of uh, the mark-to-market, the way that, that yeah. banks That's, have... Uh, Explain what that is, and then we'll, yeah. we'll, give, we'll um, give our listeners a break. <laughs> let me go back to the savings and loan crisis of the 80s, uh, which was really exacerbated by, mark to, by failure to do mark-to-market accounting. So the savings and loans didn't have to uh, acknowledge the fact that a lot of their assets at market prices were worth half of what they paid for them. So that meant they could stay in business and not be closed, and they were happy about that, and for a while the regulators were happy about that. But then they kept making more and more bad bets, <laughs> and it ended up costing the taxpayers in the end much more because they stayed in business too long. So. That was doing not doing mark-to-market accounting. So mark-to-market accounting was a response to that that said, okay, now you guys have to uh, record the market value of your assets. Now the problem that that created uh, in this environment is that uh, it, it means that systemically, if one guy is marking down his, the value of his portfolio, and then part of your portfolio is, you know, shares in, in the guy who just marked down his value, then you've got to mark down your value, and it just became, becomes a vicious cycle. Uh, to some extent, that also is true with uh, capital requirements. They've become a vicious cycle. You know, one company ha- has to raise capital to, uh, to meet capital requirements. That makes it harder for another company to raise capital, meet its capital requirements, and suddenly everybody's... Uh, struggling to get capital. Well, in mark with with everyone doing mark to market at a time at the same time when when the market's getting thin, that tends to cascade to. I don't think people have thought through the systemic risk involved in mark to market accounting, and so you're seeing a lot of people calling for getting rid of that. I'm a little nervous about that. I think there's, I think it would be better than some of the proposals out there. Uh, to get rid of mark-to-market accounting. Uh, you, know, you, you have to recognize if you do get rid of mark-to-market accounting, you are creating a different sort of risk, that you're creating a risk that these companies, because they're not marking to market, are hiding losses, and a lot of them are, you know, are banks that are hiding losses, that, and if they're hiding losses, eventually we're going to have to bail them out. And just to clarify, this, this piece of jargon, mark-to-market, simply means that your books should reflect the current market value rather than what you paid for it or what it, what it right. might be worth down the road if markets recover. Or right. Yeah, you can't you can't you can't put the value as what you hope the asset <laughs> is worth 
or what it was worth when you bought it, but it's what you would, would get for it if you sold it today. And today, there are a lot of there's, there are no buyers for a lot of these assets. And so, even though in some ideal fundamental world these assets are worth, let's say, eighty cents, they're being on the dollar. They're up for a dollar's worth of book value. They're being uh, priced in the market at thirty cents on the dollar. Now, having said that, you know, you, I hear that there are lots of sort of vulture funds out there bidding and waiting to bid on these assets. But those vulture funds are paralyzed because these companies are refusing to sell stuff because they think they'll be able to get a better price yeah. from a bailout. <laughs> Moral so hazard problem there. That's that, that's a source of concern. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Arnold. I, I've learned a tremendous amount uh, from our conversation, our original one and this follow-up, and I'm, I hope our listeners have as well. I'm sure they have. And I, unfortunately, still have more to learn, as I suspect uh, we all do. But, do. but thanks for all your time. Thanks. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.